Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forged in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Ray, pronouns he, him, your host for today's episode, Scene Quest 2021. Today we sit down with not one, but four guests, each with a different Forged in the Dark Zine Quest project. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Emma, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm the designer of Crescent Moon. Hi, I'm Laurie, my pronouns are he, him, I'm the designer of Lichcraft. Hi, I'm Tom. I'm working on High Speed Low Drag. My pronouns are he, him. Hi, my name is Eli. Uh, my pronouns are he, him as well. And I'm the designer of External Containment Bureau, which has recently been renamed Evil Cat Bakery. Total complete pivot, but we're super excited. It's all official now. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, thank you all for joining us today. Super excited to talk to everyone. But because we have four guests instead of just one or two, today's format is a little bit different. So what we're going to do is feature each guest and their project separately with all of the other desires pitching in and interviewing each other. So let's start today with Emma. Emma, tell us a little bit more about Crescent Moon. What's the pitch? Sure. Crescent Moon is a game about brave children where you delve into a strange dreamscape known as the daydream and the Kids kind of like go into adventures, make discoveries, learn more about the world, learn more about themselves. And it's sort of like both an introspective and an extrospective experience in the sense that you are both exploring the world in external sense, but you're also exploring the character psyches and probably other people's psyches because of how the setting works. Awesome. What are some touchstones for Crescent Moon? You said you know, you play as children. What what sort of other media comes to mind when when you were coming up with the project? I would say that the starting touchstone was kind of like The Legend of Zelda. That was like a big one, especially Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, Link's Awakening, those games where you are more of a kid than an adult. And everyone always is reminding you that, that you're a kid. And Over the Garden Wall also came up a lot when I was brainstorming this, the way that characters are kids, not only in a literal sense, but also in how they deal with problems. I thought that it was a very useful way to frame an adventure game that didn't necessarily rely on violence, the same way that you could find in, for example, most video games, right? You can be like eight years old and still beat people up and no one <laughs> says anything about it, but I wanted to keep it a bit more grounded in that regard. What kind of themes will players explore in Crescent Moon? What type of adventures do you hope that they go on? I think that for the most part, it's very, I don't know if calling it emotional adventures is the right way. Um, I think that depending on the link type that you choose, it's going to vary a little bit. Basically, Crescent Moon's version of the crew is the link sheet, which is a shared bond that brings the kids together. So for example, if you are playing the family, which is like the most basic fairy tale sort of uh, link, you are going to be exploring a lot of whimsical and wholesome vibes all around. It's like the sort of journeys that you could expect in that type of media where like, you know, there's like the big old bear called Roro and he's your friend and he also like is a merchant, that kind of thing. And then, for example, if you play as the Stranded, which are not kids that have just wandered into the daydream one day after lunch, but have actually been there surviving there for quite a while. 
then the tone becomes a little more adventurous and it's more about stirring up trouble and seeing how you can outwit these creatures in this world. So depending on which one you decide to take, you can make it more happy, more melancholic and sort of like dial that up with the group. So Emma, I'm really curious. I remember you had in the early sort of exploration of this project, you had been a little uncertain because Kickstarter doesn't actually work in Portugal, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. So did you end up finding collaborators to work with to help out with this project? Or how are you approaching that? Yeah, so things were a bit unsure for a, for a hot second. I was considering trying to team up with a publisher of any kind to sort of try to get the game out because Portugal is not part of the list of the games that can receive the funds of a Kickstarter. What I ended up doing was to partner up with a friend, a longtime friend, and also our relationship is not necessarily in the creative field. He's the one that's uh, receiving everything for me and handling that part of the process. So it wasn't so difficult as I would have expected, but it did lean to some like low-key stressful situations. But it's all good now. Good. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this might be a bit of a change of subject and maybe won't translate great over podcast. But one of the things I want to say is the art for Crescent Moon is amazing. And I, you should you should talk about it and sell it because it is honestly beautiful and it has this like great dreamy vibe. I don't know if you want to like talk about yourself as an artist or how you came up with all the art for this, but it's beautiful. Yeah, sure. Like in a process sense, I think that my approach to designing this game has been maybe a bit weird. <laughs> Let's call it weird. In the sense that I'm I'm not a game designer, in the sense that I have been doing this for like a decade or something. Like I've just started to take it more seriously and this is the first project that I actually pursue into publishing, even if it is self-publishing. And in my head, a lot of the process has been trying to translate these images and these feelings into a game. So I actually started with like this very big concept of how would a game called Crescent Moon be, right? Like what kind of things you would do in this game? And I just had this image, right? Of like the adventurer kids that have like a ton of stuff in them and have like these puffy adventurous clothes, but are also eight. And a lot of that visual imagery has been my main way of going forward with the design of trying to translate whatever comes into mind into things that are gameable, but but that are still very articulate in the sense that there are a lot of tangible things like objects in these games are huge, right? So like there's this very tangible way to the daydream and the world and the characters in how they look and how they act. So this is a podcast about Forged in the Dark games and Forged in the Dark, as we know, is a very intricate and interlinked system. So I'm curious, how did you pare down that framework for Zine Quest, which purposely kind of pushes smaller projects and little DIY projects? It's actually been interesting because this didn't start out as a Blades hack. This actually started as an OSR game. So I was actually using Mouse Reader, which if you don't know, it's this very good OSR game where you play as little mice uh, going on adventures and stealing treasure. And what's amazing about Mouse Reader is that it's written in such a way that it feels at times that it resembles more a PBTA than it does a traditional OSR, in the sense that everything is very stripped down into very core ideas, every every page is very 
full with details and actionable things. And that was sort of the blueprint that I had for Crescent since the very start. So this has always been a scene in that regard. And I've always got the project through an A5, around 40 page-ish book. So when I actually made the switch to Forge in the Dark, it wasn't a matter of what I am taking out, but rather what I'm taking in. So it's been very minimalistic in that sense of, I really like the framework of Forge in the Dark, but I also wanted to keep it as manageable as possible. So the concern of this space, the the text has to take and the amount of mechanics that I get to include has always been accounted for. So the switch, the switch to scene quest in that was very seamless and very easy to make. So Emma, you talked a little bit about being sort of visually inspired and correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're an illustrator by trade, right? This, yes. All of the illustrations and all of the arts done by you. Mm -hmm. um, so can you, can you talk a little bit more about your design process? So start with the imagery, where do you go from there? I tend to describe my process as I always forget which, which way it goes. I think that inductive is when you start from the result and then go back to the process. It might be the opposite. I never get it right. <laughs> but I tend to describe it as inductive in the sense that I start from things that I think sound cool and then I work my way back into how that actually works. So a lot of the time I want a thing called heart, because it sounds cool to have a thing in your game that's called heart. So what is actually heart in this game? How does it work? That's where I start to actually see how that can fit into the process. But it will always go back to, do I think it sounds cool? Do I think that it is thematic to the kind of story that I'm trying to create? Um, and it's what I think can help things feel more cohesive even if it's not like a super intricate design. The um, fact that everything is linked from that poetry layer, as John Harper likes to describe it, I think really helps. Especially if you are like, if you don't have a lot of design work behind your back, I think that it can be a, a nice way to keep everything supported and everything uh, cohesive. So I was wondering what art like inspires you? Like the illustrations are beautiful. Like what, what are your inspirations and touchstones? like the like visual stuff yeah so visually speaking i've been very inspired by a couple of illustrators that i feel really convey that dreamy tone for example there's elena and olivia ceballos which i think work for disney or have worked for it in the past and they just have these flashes of color that create some very interesting color schemes and that make it feel very oniric in that sense. There's also Erin Best, which has always been a very big inspiration. And she also has these very moody pieces where it has like that fairy tale edge where you can sense the familiarity, but also the strangeness of it all. And in terms of characters, I would say that Square games are also a big influence in how you approach like these kid adventurers and how everything has like that cute, cute um, edge to it. Especially the art for Final Fantasy Tactics, uh, Final Fantasy XII, Bravely Default. I think that everything that Square has been producing in the past five years really fits with what I'm going for with this game too. 
So Emma, let's talk about prints because ZineQuest is all about the zine and the print zine itself. So what are the specifications for Crescent Moon? What can we expect if we back it? Oh, yeah. So the game is probably going to be on color. Don't tell anyone. It's going to be around 40 pages and it's going to be ivory colored. So it's going to have a little bit of texture. I am hoping to have it hand soon. So it will have like a little thread that will hold it all together. And yeah, if you back the scene, you will get the book in those measures. It's also going to be an A5 and with a light cover. And then I'm also planning on some add-ons, uh, which are basically going to be a set of cards that you can, you can use to play the game. Basically the game features an inventory system where you actually place tiles into your character sheet to move the, the items around mouse reader style. So I am planning that you can have a printed sheet of those that you can then cut out and use them to play the game. And then for, there are also going to be a couple of rewards where I'll also draw your character. So if you send me a description or a photo or any references, then I will also send a little A5 print. And yeah, if you believe what my co-hosts are saying about the art being very good. Maybe you're interested in that. So those are the main three things. It's a fairly simple campaign and most of it you are going to get it anyway in digital form if you back the lowest tier, which is only the PDF. Thinking about the format made me realize I want to join the chorus of praise for your art. I'm really impressed by it. It's a lot, ton of fun to see new pieces come out. But are you planning on doing a black and white or a color production for the interior of the zine? I am still deciding on that. I think that my art really benefits from having color, but I'm also interested in experimenting with a more limited palette, just because I think that that will fit the look of ZineQuest, right? Like as a more bare bones type of project. So it will depend. I think that there will be color in some way or another, but the amount of it might be a little limited just to like fit the format a little bit better. So Emma, when does Crescent Moon go live and where can people find more of your work? Crescent Moon is going live on February 13th and you can find out the campaign page if you go to bit.ly slash Crescent Moon Kickstarter, all one word. And you can find me online as at SpookyMill on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, if you happen to use that, uh, pretty much every social media platform. Great. Looking forward to it. So how do I transition here? <laughs> well, asking how you transition is a very good question because that is the topic. <laughs> Speaking about transition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lori, why don't you tell us about your project, Litchcraft? Lichcraft is a is a game about transgender necromancers who have been on a waiting list for healthcare for about 300 years and have decided to become a lich uh, in order to get to the end of it. That's the elevator pitch anyway. Very cool. <laughs> Very nice. So Laurie, themes of lichdom, things of undead and themes of transitioning. What are your inspirations? Sort of what, what are you drawing from with this project? First of all, I mean, Lichcraft as a game is one that is very based on my own personal experiences, trying to, you know, 
get healthcare. Uh, I'm personally on a 300 year long waiting list. I mean, it's five years, but it might as well be 300. And also, and it's, it's an experience that obviously a lot of people have and is very personal to a lot of people. But also, I would say it's, it's mainly born out of spite. And, and that is a, a key touchstone. In terms of media references and things like that, I wanted to get at a vibe that's a little bit like tongue, tongue in cheek and actually like a little bit lighthearted. I'm kind of inspired by sort of British comedy and, and satire in that way. Like a sort of, yes, this is, yes, this is spiteful. Yes, this is about like quite a difficult subject, but at the same time, you can be lighthearted about it and you can kind of like make a little bit of a mockery, not of like yourself and your own struggles, but of the situation, which is quite frankly, very ridiculous. One of the things I love about Lichcraft are the generators that you included for the missions. Mm. I loved how fun and whimsical. I loved the idea of going to Stonehenge during a music festival. Listeners, if you put a music festival in your RPG, I'm basically there <laughs> any given time. Could you talk a little bit about those generators and how you came up with them? Yeah, so actually this this kind of goes back to a Forged in the Dark question because one of the things that I took out is the engagement role and this, this score concept because Lichcraft is a game that's built around being a one-shot. Like it has, it, you can replay it multiple times because of these like rollable tables generators, but it's not supposed to last like more than one or two sessions. And instead of having like an engagement role, I wanted something that would throw people into the action, but in a way that kind of generates a little bit of the setting, does a, a little bit of the work for the GM. So the concept is that you want to become a lich. You have these three components that you need. You have two like ritual components and then one like you need to get to like a sacred location or like a location of great magical power in order to complete the ritual and there are snags <laughs> in all of these things which are sort of generated by the table uh so it's a, it's a standard d6 table you roll three times for each quest so the first one if you're looking for a spell I would roll a d6. Uh, one of the options is like a, a long lost Sappho poem. And then it might be in a like a magical school, no, no copyright, just a generic magical school guarded by, let's say, vampires. Or, you know, you're trying to get to a magical site to complete the ritual and it turns out it is in a place that's been recently seceded from the UK because this is <laughs> set in dystopian Britain. So you've got to kind of cross the border into... Uh, the Cornish Autonomous Zone or somewhere like that. Um, <laughs> it, it, I found when playtesting that they were really fun. They weren't like limiting. I remember we ended up going to this like ziggurat that was the site of a massive music festival, but the person who was GMing just decided to like bring in a Draco Lich that we had to fight. <laughs> so, you know, they're not, they're not limiting in any way, but they are like a fun jumping off point a little bit again. A little bit random, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, that totally sounds like my GMing style, too. <laughs> so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about playtesting and and what goes into that. So I noticed that Lichcraft specifies that it is a game for one GM and one player, but you can play with more players. Is that because of the way you playtested the game? It's because I think of... I actually playtested the game with... with bigger groups. I playtested it with three people and I playtested it with just like two people. And 
I found that it didn't really change the balance. You can do it. You can play it with as many people as you want. But the thing that it changed was the, I guess, the vibe. Of course, you're getting the opportunity to like sit down and have a lot of fun. But you're also getting the opportunity to explore something that's quite intimate, which is like yourself and who you are and what will you sacrifice to become a lich. So, <laughs> you know, all of these things are things that sometimes I think are better with a conversation between you and one other person. So I have kind of a two part question here. It sounds to me like a lot of the gameplay so far is about the journey to become a lich. And so my question is, first, does the game end whenever you achieve lichdom? And before you get to that point, how much of a magical sort of adventure is it? Like, are you purely mundane human beings who are on a quest to get magic? Or do you make use of that sort of thing in the course of the game? Or how does that work out? That's a really good question, because actually one of the things that I like the most about Lichcraft is the way that it does magic, and maybe it's not something that I get to talk about a huge amount. So at the beginning of the game, when you're making a character, you choose a couple things. You choose your job, your hobby, your politics. You also choose a magical source. So this is like where you get your innate powers from. You can be a druid, you can be someone who casts ritual, you can be like the seventh uh, daughter of a seventh daughter or the seventh son of a seventh son or anywhere in between. And that gives you the source of your powers and that kind of adds a bonus to your role mechanically if you're doing something that relates to nature and you're a druid. So you can always cast spells, but like the magic is very much every day too. If your hobby is a baker and you want to cast a spell, if it relates to baking, you get a bonus. So I had a player that used to cast all her spells using a sourdough starter because she got a bonus to her rolls from it. And th these all kind of add into the magic of the game, which you have the whole way through. But the game does end when you become a lich. There's a sort of a bit of a ritual you go through where you answer a few questions. And the idea is, you know, well, once you're a lich, you can do whatever you want. Like, you've become a being of great magical power. There's no point in continuing to play. You have achieved what you set out to do. And the question is more what you sacrifice, what you lose along the way, if you lose anything at all. So something that I've been thinking about ever since I first saw the game is that you're dealing with people who have been denied access to healthcare, which I think can be quite a sensitive subject for a lot of people. And you also mentioned that you are doing it in such a way that it's very tongue-in-cheek and it's very lighthearted. And I'm guessing that the fact that the game is a one-shot does really help with that. But I'm also wondering if how during play do you strike a balance between a heavy subject with a more lighthearted approach? Like if you see it bleeding into something a bit more emotional in some cases, depending on who's playing. Yeah, and I guess like I've definitely found, for example, the game hits heavier subjects when it's played with two people. When it's played with th three people, it tends to go into a bit more of a fun, you know, lighthearted satire. And that's completely fine. And you can sort of play it whatever way you want. I will say like on the first page of Lichcraft, basically, there's a little disclaimer that says this game may not be for you, not because there's anything wrong with you or how you're approaching the topic, but just because it does tackle this difficult theme in a way that is, yeah, lighthearted and, and funny and, and satirical. And 
you know, for me, that's a, that's a good thing. <laughs> it, help, you know, it helps me to confront the issue and deal with it. But for others, it's not. And that's fine. That just means there's loads of other games out there that you can play. The other thing is, I am a massive fan of using safety tools at the table, making sure that, for example, there's like an X card mechanic if players don't want to discuss something. Uh, then they absolutely don't have to, and making sure that any like lines and veils are discussed in advance, which is absolutely crucial. And I think the last thing is actually, Lichcraft does deal with this theme of healthcare, but you never have to like directly confront like the officials that are denying you healthcare. That's not the theme. The theme is that you're going off to fight a vampire to get an ancient spellbook. So <laughs> you can you can kind of avoid the the really heavy confrontations and topics if you want. That's pretty interesting, yeah. I found that, and I'm sure that some of you might also feel this way, but like RPGs can be a great way to explore things that are difficult to you personally, because you get to be in a safe environment and engage with whatever um, is sensitive to you in a way that can be um, quite opening. So I think that, that that can be a super cool experience, especially if you've personally deal with those things in your life, whether it's like in a more lighthearted side or in a more personal side. So yeah, super excited to get to try that. Yeah. And I would also say like not having access to healthcare is not something that is just a theme, but it's not something that's just a problem that trans people encounter. You know, it's a huge issue, especially in countries where there isn't like a, a national health service where people don't have access to the healthcare that they need. And I don't want to make it seem as though this is just a game for trans people or this is just a theme for trans people or just a conversation that we can participate in. Obviously, sensitivity is, is crucial. And I did write it about like my personal experiences, but especially if you're like working class, if you're disabled, these are all themes and, and things that you might have to tackle and like there's a sense of, of solidarity and openness that I hope is like written into Lichcraft that anyone can like play it and engage with that. So I'm curious, are there folks who are working with you on this project either as part of like a core team or as part of stretch goals or anything like that? Well, I did talk up Emma's art a lot earlier <laughs> and perhaps that was a bit selfish because her art is a stretch goal on uh, on Lichcraft too and so one of the big stretch goals is getting some kind of character illustrations in the book and Emma will do those. I also have an amazing cover artist Kristen who who made my Lichcraft cover for Zine Quest. Uh, she even drew a horse for it which anyone who does art will know that is no small undertaking so you know a big shout out to her. The other person who's uh uh, a stretch goal is is Sam D, who is a, another like forged in the dark game designer who wrote things like Duskfall Breathes, people might have heard about and played with. And the reason why I, I talked to him is because his writing is so like lyrical and really explores these like personal themes and really like gets to the heart of like what it means to connect with other people and what it means to like connect with yourself. And so that is one of the key themes of like the ritual at the end of Lichcraft. You ask yourself these questions. And so one of the big stretch goals is, is getting an extra page, like an expanded ritual for that, which Sam will write. And I really hope we get there because I'm very much looking forward to it. Fantastic. Laurie, when does Lichcraft go live and where can people find more of your work? So it goes live on the 4th of February, which is uh, the Thursday. And you can find me on Twitter at Laurie underscore 
E E E Triple E. Uh, or you can find me on my itch.io page, Laurie O'Connell. I'm going to take a take a punt and say hopefully these will be linked somewhere <laughs> below because they're not super easy to spell. But I did just recently bring out a game called Hieronymus, which I hear people enjoy, which has been an exercise in how to spell one word several different ways. Um, so that's probably what you'll see if you look me up. Fantastic. Let's move on to our third guest, Tom. Hello. So I am working on, at the moment, high-speed, low-drag, which is a solo like journaling RPG about being in the Special Forces. It's, despite all the art and all the fonts and all that, it's it's not about blowing stuff up. Like, you will blow stuff up, but it's not so much about getting into the nitty-gritty and doing combat and stuff like that. It's a sort of personal reflection on a soldier's career and how having to do horrible shit changes you and sort of stories growing in, in unpredictable ways. I was inspired when I bought The Wretched by Chris Bissett. It's like Dead Space. You're on a spaceship that's falling apart and a monster's hunting you. And this really personal experience of writing logs and drawing random events. And it was a really interesting way of looking at solo role-playing games, um, which I think is a, a real like niche that's growing massively uh, with the pandemic and people not being able to find groups and stuff. These games where you could sit down for an afternoon and create a story. And I think there's a, a, a space there to explore all kinds of different things. And I set out to write it to be period agnostic. It's the setting sort of assumes that you're in a relatively modern military, but we're talking 1940 onwards. So there's a whole sort of space. So you could do Saving Private Ryan, you could do Platoon, like there's a Generation Kill. There's all sorts of stories that are being told, and there's all sorts of places to to go with it. So I wanted to give people a framework to build off of, and I think that's what sort of the, the game's about. It's quite it's quite abstract. It's the most abstract thing I've ever written. If you've seen my mad ramblings about 14th century Italy or World War Two, I've gone a bit crazy, but I'm ex trying to be abstract and keep it as small as possible. Otherwise, I'll end up writing another 100-page game, and that's not, that's not Zine Quest. So I've got a question. The name is really evocative, and it sounds like it keys into some sort of military culture, but I'm not familiar with it. Can you tease out the title a little bit? So it was coined by the American Green Berets, I think in the 80s, 70s, 80s. And it's about being fast and efficient and sort of clinical and precise but it can also be a perjurative. So if you were a grunt, you might say that guy's really high speed, low drag because he's gone and bought loads of like kit that doesn't help make him work more efficiently, but he looks cool. So it's kind of got that double side of playing into this weird military macho culture while also exploring the like the deeply personal story that anyone in the armed forces has to go through every day. And I wouldn't, I don't want to say satirizing because I don't think I'm trying to be that clever. But in some ways, you can, it does send up a lot of the imagery we're shown in the media in things like Call of Duty, 
in like Top Gun, the like propaganda type shit. I want I want to almost stand that up and tell a story that's more like Generation Kill, which is ridiculous. And the fact that they had to cut shit from that show because HBO was like, now nah, that's too ridiculous. People won't believe people did that. And so that kind of inhabiting that space. So something I'm wondering about this, you are mentioning that you're interested in having the writing be a little more um, ambiguous and not mm -hmm. as historically researched as your other work. If I were to start playing the game as someone who doesn't know anything about the military, is the idea to play through a character without necessarily establishing a lot of hard facts about the kind of war that they are fighting? Or do you envision it as having like more tools so I can say, okay, so I am playing Miles and he play, he like participated in this war and in this war, or like how do you deal with the historical accuracy in that regard? So I think because it's a solo game, um, approaching it in a very different way to say something like Condotto, where I have done so many hours of research for that to get a like baseline of historical accuracy, because I'm a massive perfectionist. So I could spend days just tweaking like names and stuff like that. But what I wanted to do is because it's a solo game, um, I think a lot of it is up to you as a person. And one thing that I saw when I was playtesting Condotto was that some people will really get into the aspect of researching it. And when we were creating characters for my playtests, I had a couple of players pulling up Wikipedia pages while we were playing to make sure the details they were teasing out were historically accurate. So in some ways, a lot of it is it's down to the, the person playing. But I'm also a big believer that things like random tables can be setting. Um, I think some role-playing games go completely the other way and they're like, you know, we'll have reams and reams of background that no one's ever going to read. But a sentence in a random table is as much setting as a full page of law. Um, depending on how much space I have left when I've finished writing it, I'm going to put tables of ranks and names for various cultures and time periods. At the moment, I'm trying to figure out which ones I want to highlight Um, thankfully, the US military hasn't changed much in 80 years. So I'm probably going to do the British Army and the US Army, and then maybe Russia. I don't know. It depends. It depends how much space I have. I'm trying to limit myself to 40 pages, because if I don't give myself a hard limit, I'll be here for years again. So yeah, somewhere I'm going to put the onus on the player. Say, you can do as much or as little as you want, and ultimately this is your story. If you care about historical accuracy, here's some good places to get started. If not, there's enough stuff baked into the tables. For a, as a specific example, the way the game plays is you pick stages. So it's kind of like life path character creation, but that's the whole game. So you pick a stage and it has a table that you roll on for that stage. And that stage table has a little bit of background in it. So I think in theory, just with the stage tables and the random events, you'll be able to tell a story. And then if there are any gaps, they're like Wikipedia can help you fill those in. So The Wretched has a meta narrative baked in that is not readily apparent when you first start playing it. It's, it's basically a play to lose game, but yeah. it gives you the false sense of hope. Is there a similar type of meta narrative baked into high speed low drag? I don't know. I think 
I'm trying to keep myself quite open because I'm, I'm not as clever as Chris is. And I would never have thought to put that meta-narrative into the events and things like that. Because these stories are so personal, I think having a set narrative, it's too flexible. There's too much variation. But I think I'm trying to emphasize the unpredictability and sort of your character can change in in like other ways. So I'm I was really inspired by Traveller, where when you create a Traveller character, your character can just straight up die in character creation, and the game goes, oh, I guess this guy's dead, or his stats are so bad that you can't play him. I guess you're rolling up another character then. And I think that's fascinating. The like this space of things evolving and changing in really unpredictable ways because the the systems all link together in certain ways. Like again, a burning wheel. The burning wheel character creation. I, I'm not a huge fan of the game, but the character creation is amazing. And I think just leaning into all of that and saying that I don't know if there's going to be a set end state. A lot of this is still in in flux as I sort of design as I go because I'm not a very organized person. Let's talk about the aesthetic of the project a little bit. So you're using open source art, and it has a look and feel. Def, very, very design look and feel. Could you talk a little bit about that and your inspiration, what you're drawing from? Well, first, I'd like to give a big thank you to Uncle Sam for making every picture taken by the US Army public domain. Without them, this would just be like empty. But a lot of it is I have, I've gone for this visual style because the style of all the pictures I've got is so disjointed because it's a million different pictures from a million different places. And in some ways, I need the art to evoke the 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 period agnosticity. That's not a word. Uh, whatever the period agnostic quality, and I can't really do that if every the subject of every photo is in U.S. camo. So using this heavily kind of graffiti sprayed on art style, it files a lot of the serial numbers off all the pictures. They're very. It's a very obviously military and in some ways it's sort of being inspired by old 2000 AD comics that very kind of heavily processed graphic style sort of inky bit typewritery but it allows me to have a lot more flexibility with the art I use because it's military dudes doing military stuff it's harder to identify oh this picture's from Afghanistan or this one's from Vietnam it's more I want to evoke this kind of military field manually tank graffiti kind of feel but without specifically locking myself into one period it's all come from all the work i've done on hell on wheels which is very hyper focused and again i've used a lot of u.s army pictures from the period there as well but i think so much of it when you use period stuff you have to be conscious about where it's from and what it says and kind of processing them in the way I have just makes life a lot easier for me. And it gives the Xena consistent aesthetic. So you mentioned that, you know, I know you're drawing on a lot of historical knowledge that you have and that you mm-hmm. search out and that sort of thing. And you're also using public domain images and all that. So is this a project where you're going totally solo or do you have collaborators or how are you approaching it? No, it's just me. For some stupid reason, I do everything by myself, which is a lot more work, but I think this is as much a like a personal thing for me. The zine quest is like I want to do all this by myself as a to prove to myself that I can do it and then, you know, maybe I'll take the pressure off and find someone for my bigger projects. But I think you also seed 
a lot of creative con- well not a lot of creative control but you have to be in the same headspace as someone when you're designing together and working together it's clear that with ecb you guys are on the same page with how all that's coming together and i don't really know anyone that is in the same mindset as me when it comes to this so i think it's just easier um, to do a lot of this myself and then it's quite personal i think i spent a lot of time working for a war games company my great grandfather was in World War One. It's I'm drawing on a lot, like pers- putting a lot of personal stuff into this. Um, it's been it's been quite rewarding so far. Listeners, for those not on the Blades in the Dark Discord, Tom is an absolute beast. Since joining the Discord a couple of months ago, I think he's this is his third game that he's completed, and two of them have been basically complete Forge in the Dark hacks. So he is a workhorse of design layout. You name it, he does it. Tom. When does High Speed Load Drag launch, and where can people find more of your work? It's coming out on the 13th of February, I think. We'll see how busy ZineQuest is. But provisionally, it's 13th of February. You can find me on Twitter, at Tom Creedy, and down below in the video description, I presume. And then my itch.io is Northern Stranger, where you can find some completely bonkers one-page games that I've written, where... They're, they're mad. Go check those out because they're completely bonkers. All right, let's move on to our last guest. Eli, please tell us about your ZineQuest project. Yeah, hi, everybody. So External Containment Bureau is a game of paranormal investigation and navigating a the bureaucracy of an organization that's responsible for maintaining a healthy balance between the mundane world and the paranormal world. We are using the Forge in the Dark framework. We're sort of angling for a two to six player experience over the course of two to four hours. So it's a fairly tight gameplay experience. Yeah, it's been a really fun project to put together so far. And uh, I think there are just so many cool little bits. It's hard for me to boil it all down. Let's start with your collaborators and who else is involved with the project? Because this is a big sort of community effort. There's there's a bunch of designers involved. So who else besides uh, you is in the project? Yeah, so I'll start by sort of saying how the project came together. I was playing the video game Control a few months ago, and I was really taken by the notion of this paranormal investigation organization that was itself operating out of a paranormal space. Uh, And so I was sort of brainstorming about that in the Forge in the Dark Discord channels. And uh, a few people were like, oh, yeah, I've had ideas about this, too. So we ended up going into a DM chat to sort of hash out the different ideas that we had. And it turned out that they were similar enough that we could sort of develop the game together. So Lexi Antoku is going to be our editor. Uh, Eric Brunsell and Michael Elliott are sort of tag teaming the writing together. Justin Ford is handling art direction, and I'm doing the project management and layout. But we're all sort of helping out with a lot of things. It's a really collaborative experience so far. And how has it been collaborating with so many other designers in in the same space? Like, what have you learned and what have you taken from, from that experience? It's been cool. This is my third Kickstarter project, and it's the second one where I've had collaborators that I'm working with. Uh, Similar to Tom, my early game design experience was all a solo show. And unfortunately, my first Kickstarter is also the biggest 
book that I've ever created. And so doing that on my own taught me a lesson like, okay, I never want to do this again. Um, <laughs> so it's been really cool working with people right now. We, uh, it's interesting how ideas change when they encounter other people. I was thinking whenever we first sat down to do this, that we would create a very simple game, you know, five pages or something like that. We'd do it in a couple of weeks and we would put it out as something that people could use to create their own custom themed stuff branching off of. And it's kept that core idea, but it's expanded a lot. We're now looking at something that's going to kind of stretch the limits of page count in terms of a scene. <laughs> We're still determined to do saddle stitch, but um, yeah, it's going to be a fairly big read as far as zines go. So, you know, like we have different core ideas that have been the same more or less since the beginning, but different people have brought their game design inspirations to the table and enriched the game in some really cool ways. So, for example, I know that Eric is a big fan of a lot of Gauntlet games, Trophy, Brindlewood Bay, stuff like that. And one of the game mechanics that has turned out to be pretty critical uh, it's called the theorize role, and it's really inspired by the investigative mechanics that are in Brindlewood Bay. And so, you know, Eric introduced this idea. We all discussed it. We sort of ripped it apart and put it back together in a way that's really reinforcing the themes that we're going for in our game. I've had a chance to read an early draft of ECB, and one of the things that really stuck out to me was the way that encounters are structured. Could you talk a little bit about sort of how ECB handles scenarios slash uh, modules? Yeah, so this is definitely one of the tighter parts of the game design. Um, we are forged in the dark in the sense that we play through phases and that we have a sort of engagement role kind of process and that and that kind of stuff. But we are a much tighter experience overall. So the mission structure is more or less like you do an engagement role at the beginning and you're in the action right away. And the two broad phases that you go through are the investigation and the containment, and then the debrief and the bureau life after that. And so with a mission, it starts off with a briefing, which is really just a couple of sentences where the game master can convey some basic information about what the Bureau knows already about the paranormal event that you're investigating. And that could be an item that's gotten some weird properties attached to it. It could be like a, par a parallel dimension that's bleeding into our own. It could be a person or a cryptid or something like that. But once you get the briefing, there's a mission clock that sort of gauges how urgently you should be pursuing your tasks here. Uh, then there are complications that might come up. That's basically a roll table. There are different clues for the three bureau pillars, which are identify, obfuscate, and contain. There's a list of NPCs, and that's really it. So it's a very bare bones framework for the game master to be able to reference information at a glance and communicate really gameable stuff to the players. I wanted to ask like a little bit about the kind of core inspirations, because one thing that I really like is how you're playing these like professionals from an agency, which is not 
like something that you really see in these kinds of paranormal like media when when you're thinking of things like x-files you know you're trying to uncover the conspiracy you're not a part of it uh and i wonder how you're like kind of balancing that how 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 you're approaching that because to me that's a really interesting take that you don't get to see so often sure so i mentioned control was sort of the er inspiration for the game and there's still a lot of that there it's no longer a game about the life strictly inside the bureau there's an exterior element as well but we drew a lot of inspiration from stuff like the scp foundation uh, which is a lot of sort of viral crowdsourced paranormal content people have brought in inspirations like the x-files you know twin peaks we've got media property that i wasn't familiar with called the laundry which is a paranormal investigation thing where i think they pose as a laundromat uh, so there are a lot of things like that sort of working together. And we tried as much as we could to find inspirations that weren't the usual shady government spooks going out and doing stuff. All of us are varying shades of critical of government and law enforcement and that sort of thing. So we're not explicit about the organizational structure of the Bureau, but a lot of hints pointed at being affiliated with a museum rather than with some sort of like FBI agency or something like that. And that actually really informed those principles that I mentioned earlier. We wanted as much as possible to make it a game that wasn't about violence and destroying these paranormal things or trying to be the wolf protecting the sheep of normal society or something like that. We wanted to get away from that imagery. And so the crux of the adventure and the, and the, the crux of the gameplay that you're doing is limited to we want to understand the true nature of the phenomenon. We want to determine if it needs to be integrated better into its environment or if there are any people in the mundane world who might abuse it. And then we want to determine whether we need to cover it up, whether we need to help it get back to its own point of origin, whether we need to bring it to the Bureau and accommodate it while we figure out more stuff about it or, or what have you there. So yeah, those inspirations informed a lot of the game, but it really went off in its own direction too. So something I'm super curious about is that I've seen that you have been referring to this game as Fortune Dark, but you are also calling it part of redacted materials, if I am right about that. So I think that there has also been talk about how the game is very easy to hack and modify. And I am wondering how open you are to that from the get go. Yeah, so one of the things that you'll see whenever the Kickstarter page launches is that we actually are going to be putting out a free license and a hacker's guide for the game. The license is called the Redacted Materials License. So anyone who wants to create a game that's about paranormal investigation, that's about paranormal weirdness more generally, that's about the sort of interplay between doing work out in the field and then coming back and experiencing what life is like in the office hierarchy is going to be able to do that with the materials that we've provided. So all you have to do to be able to do that is take a look at the hacking guide, figure out what you want to keep and what you want to change, and then slap the redacted materials license on your game. And it can be associated with, you know, this sort of design framework. So thinking a little specifically about ways that we're making the game hackable, 
Part of that is making sure that it's really lean, and that also made it really suitable for a ZineQuest project. Part of that is giving a lot of structure that doesn't get in the way so much as it helps you to put something together quickly. So the mission structure that I mentioned earlier is a really good example there. Missions are maybe three, 400 words. They're really not very long, but every word that we put on the page is intended to be very gameable. So you've got all the tools that you need without a whole lot of effort. And we thought that it would be really important to help other designers work in this system by providing that kind of structure for them. And a bit of a follow-up question I would have in that regard is that where do you draw the line of it still being very inspired by Blades, but also being sort of its own thing? Like I'm picking up a bit that the play cycle, it's not quite the same, where instead of having free downtime, you have to deal with the bureaucracy part. But I'm wondering if there are some other fundamental distinctions in the game, the way, in the way the game plays that made you take that decision of actually making it its own framework. Sure. Yeah. So the decision right now, and it could change as we get further into development, but we are calling it a Forged in the Dark game. And then we're also, like I said, drawing inspiration from a lot of other sources. So the action role procedure is inspired a lot by the trophy games, Trophy Dark and Trophy Gold. There's a license there too, the Rooted and Trophy license, but we wanted to kind of be conspicuous or discerning about the licenses that we tag on to this game. And, you know, also I mentioned Brindlewood Bay had some inspiration for us, and there's also a license for that. But we like the Forged in the Dark license because the philosophy of both the Forged in the Dark license and the Powered by the Apocalypse license before it are really anarchic in a way that we like. They are not trying to define what the license is. They're not trying to say, if you want to create with this license, you need X, Y, and Z. They're just saying, if you feel that your game is informed by this design to the point that it would help you to put the license on it, you're welcome to do that. And we have a very similar approach for our game, both in terms of what we're listing as an inspiration versus a specific license, and also in terms of what we want people to be able to do with the license that we're providing ourselves. One of the things that I'm noticing about indie RPGs is this greater trend towards codifying mechanically collaboration and player agency into the fiction as a whole. And I know that ECB has a unique way of handling that. What are some of the, the cool ways? How, how does that work in ECB and, and sort of how do the players have input into the, the emerging fiction that's going on. Yeah, so a lot of that happens through the roles. One of the things that we're really relying on in the Forge in the Dark framework is a long-term project. So during the downtime phase, when you're doing work at the Bureau, you have time, assuming that the mission went well and assuming that you didn't accumulate a lot of paperwork that you have to sort through back at the office, then you've got time to pursue personal projects. And that includes making your own personal investigations, that includes calling a meeting with your superior so that you could test out theories. And all of these things really help to shape the fiction, and it gives players a lot of opportunity to do that on their own rather than just being fed something by the GM. We've also got the theorize role, which goes into a little more detail there about how you can build out the story of the world. 
And so with the theory role, for example, you build a dice pool by answering three questions. What is the phenomenon? How can you contain the phenomenon? And how will you obfuscate the phenomenon? So those, again, are tying back to those three core principles, identify, obfuscate, and contain. And the player has a lot of leeway to answer those questions however they see fit. It's like, okay, well, we've done some investigation. We know that the phenomenon is Bigfoot out in Florida. Clearly the wrong place for Bigfoot, just way too hot down there. And so how do we contain the phenomenon? Well, a player might think, all right, I'm from the Department of Records in the Bureau. And so I know a lot of the historical context of other cryptids. And so I think we can contain this phenomenon because, you know, the Yeti in another part of the world really loves brown sugar or something, whatever the player wants to submit. And from there, you shape the fiction by throwing out ideas about how to respond to the content of the missions. So Eli, when does ECB launch and where can people find more of your work? ECB is a collaborative effort. So there are a few places where you can find our work separately, but uh, External Containment Bureau is going to launch on Tuesday, February 9th. We're very excited about that. And it's being published by my company, The Mythic Gazetteer. You can find us at mythicgazetteer.itch.io. We're also on DriveThruRPG. And in terms of finding news about the game, there will be a lot of news in the Blaze in the Dark Discord, of course. A lot of stuff is being tweeted out by Justin, one of the collaborators. You can find him on Twitter at Mothlands. And I think we could list out the other Twitter handles that are involved, but if you want to get the most information, head to either the Itch page or Justin's Twitter, head to the Kickstarter, and we'll have all of the where to find us and what we're doing information on the Kickstarter page. Fantastic. Thank you, Emma, Lori, Tom, and Eli for joining us today and sharing your projects for ZineQuest 2021. Listeners, that's our show. If you're interested in developing Forge in the Dark games, please check out the Blades in the Dark Discord. That's where we all meet and that's where we all talk about our little projects. Um, it's a very welcoming community. We'd love to have you. And listeners, on sort of an overall note, I started developing games around this time last year. And it's been amazing to see the Blades in the Dark community grow. I, I mean, we had developers with ZineQuest projects last year, but they were all kind of disparate. But seeing so many published games for ZineQuest under the Forge in the Dark banner is really, really inspiring. And it's, it's really great to see all the different directions and all that people are taking the system. Um, so come join us. Uh, we'd love to have you. And once again, I'm your host, Ray. And remember, when it comes to design, we all begin our journey as hacks in the dark. Mm -hmm.